Welcome to Innovative Interactions, a show by Resemble AI where we talk with makers, tinkers, and creative people to find out about the tools, tricks, insights, and techniques they use to bring their best ideas to life. Chris is a Silicon Valley entrepreneur and technologist, now the co-founder and CEO of Babel Labs, recently acquired by Cisco. Babel Labs is a deep learning technology company focused on speech. Most recently, he has led Cognite Ventures, a specialized analysis and investment company for deep learning startups. Prior to Cognite, he served as CTO for Cadence's IP Group. Chris joined Cadence after its acquisition of Tenzilica, the company he founded in 1997 to develop extensible processors. He led Tenzilica as CEO and later CTO to develop one of the most prolific embedded processor architectures. Let's welcome Chris Rowan to the show. Hi, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for taking some time to do this. One of the things we spoke about when we uh, had, a, had our first call was this idea of creating a startup, going into corporate, creating a startup, going back into corporate, or at least just growing it. So if you take us back to graduating from Harvard in 78, um, and then your, the, through your Stanford years, creating your first company, MIPS, uh, very shortly after college, what was kind of the idea behind uh, your microprocessor design? Yes. So uh, after I graduated with a degree in physics from Harvard, I went to work for Intel for a couple of years, and it became abundantly clear that I needed to have some background in engineering. So I decided to try to go to Stanford. I got into Stanford. I was there doing my master's, and I quickly got entranced with doing a PhD. And in particular, I fell in with John Hennessy and a small group of people that were working on this idea of a novel, streamlined microprocessor architecture, a category that became known as RISC, Reduced Instruction Set Computing Architectures. And in particular, we were weaving together innovations in rapid, lean silicon design and compiler technology to be able to build an architecture which was a much, much better fit for modern programming languages via optimizing compilers. And that shifted the whole philosophy of what a microprocessor instruction set and memory organization should be. And so over the course of three years, roughly, we developed this idea and then started to look to how would it become widely prolific? And we started to consider doing a startup. And so along with some more senior people, John Hennessy himself, Skip Stritter, John Masuris, a small group of us started MIPS Computer Systems uh, in the fall of 1984 uh, to go do this. And it was abundantly clear to me at that time, this would be the most interesting thing to do when I finished my PhD a few months later. And so I plunged into that, got deeply involved in designing the instruction set, helping to design the first uh, uh, implementation of that, the R2000. And it, really became simultaneously a great intellectual endeavor and a way to start learning 
the realities of what does it mean to start a company and to uh, innovate in a commercial sense, in a practical sense, so that we built this new microprocessor design. We tried lots of different business models to do this. Initially, you know, offering a chipset as the product and then boards, and then we flipped to put a focus on licensing of the design. So we went through all of the different kinds of business models, but around a technology whose time had come that this idea of reduced instruction set, this idea of having highly integrated microprocessor level uh, performance that could fit the most demanding technical and commercial applications was really gaining in strength. And so there was tremendous interest. And so from licensing and partnerships to building systems and selling systems, sort of lots of things were possible. And in fact, that propelled MIPS to go public in 1989, which was a lesson in and of itself. But as in all things in technology and in business, they have their ups and downs. And the business as an independent licensor and computer systems manufacturer wasn't really that sustainable long-term. And one of our biggest licensees customers, Silicon Graphics, uh, decided in 1992 that they wanted to have control of their architecture, in part because their big competitors like Sun and HP and Digital all had their own proprietary architectures. And so to run with the big boys, they felt they needed to own the architecture. They acquired uh, MIPS in 92. And so I went from being a you know, VP of engineering, at that time I was running the microprocessor development team uh, to being you know, a smaller cog in a much bigger machine. And so it is, I think, part of the natural life cycle for most startups. Now, for a startup, there are three outcomes. The most probable outcome is it gets started, it does some interesting things, it fizzles one way or another. It just doesn't reach any kind of escape velocity. Uh, at the other extreme, there are a small handful which by virtue of skill and luck and choosing a market that really has some explosive potential for that kind of technology, there's an IPO. And these are the things that the Silicon Valley myths are built from, but they're relatively rare. And so between the extreme of fizzling and going public, there is the most likely successful outcome for startups, which is that they get acquired because it is the big companies which have the sales channel, they have the market presence, and they have the need often for a constant influx of new fundamental technologies and, and startups fill that role. So that in getting into the career lifestyle of doing fundamental new technology, yes, you can do it in big companies, but doing it in startups is common and really so much fun that it's the way to go. At the same time, in buying into that lifestyle, you're also buying into this story arc, which says you'll grow and if successful, 
chances are you'll be acquired by somebody. And so you have to get used to the idea that you're also going to be uh, working in big companies as well. So that was the story around MIPS and Silicon Graphics. Um, I left Silicon Graphics a few years later. Uh, I had actually gone to Europe for a change of scene to be kind of a European CTO for Silicon Graphics. But when I came back to Silicon Valley, I decided to go to a new company. I realized though, that I was at that point too unplugged from what was going on in the Valley after three years in Switzerland. And so I went to work for a big company. Uh, it was really since graduating from, uh, uh, from college, the only time I had consciously gone to work for a big company. And I went to work for Synopsys as the general manager for the IP reuse business, which was really pretty much the first instantiation of a semiconductor intellectual property licensing business. And it was very early in the life of, of that business model, but it was a great lesson. But while I was there, I realized not too surprisingly that the most interesting part of semiconductor design licensing would be microprocessors, an area that I knew pretty well, but which was just one of many different things that a broad design platform like Synopsys could pursue. And so I decided to go in that direction and Synopsys wasn't interested in focusing on microprocessor technology. And so along with uh, Harvey Jones, who was at that point the chairman of, of Synopsys, but really interested in fundamental new technologies around uh, semiconductors and microprocessors, we uh, founded and funded Tensilica to focus on this really somewhat radical idea that we could in fact build microprocessors to order. That is, we could make it possible for each chip design team to say, well, this is the set of applications that I really want to do. So I want a microprocessor whose instruction set, whose memory organization is exactly suited to that class of, uh, of applications and to build something that was much faster, much cheaper, much lower power than just programming a standard microprocessor. And much more flexible because it's fully programmable than somebody who's building a logic circuit just for that application. So we found there was this, this new ground between hardwired design and programming general purpose microprocessors. And we evangelized and proliferated this idea. It took a while to get this really into the mainstream, but we ultimately did get it into the mainstream so that domain specific architecture is now a very common phrase 23 years later. <laughs> and we built um, a substantial business, but also a business that itself was really attractive to be acquired by a larger intellectual property uh, player. And eventually Cadence in 20, no, yeah, 2013 
decided that they wanted Tensilica as the cornerstone for their own semiconductor intellectual property business. And so again, after, after uh, 16 short years, <laughs> I, I found myself uh, inside of a big company uh, with lots of resources and a much more comprehensive and complicated uh, mission in the marketplace of which our piece was just one building block in a larger strategy. Um, and so I really believed in what Cadence was doing. I uh, stuck around for another four years helping really as the CTO for that uh, semiconductor IP business, this larger, uh, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, business. But in 2017, I had gotten enough exposure to and involvement in deep learning to recognize that this was one of those fundamental shifts, like the emergence of the PC, like the emergence of the internet, like the emergence of the cloud, that would really change the game for an awful lot of information technology. And there was already a growing tsunami of startups in the area. And I said, I really want to focus on these startups. And I created a, an investment vehicle, sort of a, a shingle to hang outside called Cognite Ventures, which is the label under which I started working on both investing in the most interesting startups I could find, as well as both formally and informally advising and analyzing a lot of, of deep learning startups. Of course, the, it was a time, and it still is to an extent, where any startup with half a brain would label whatever they were doing as AI, because mm -hmm. AI was the sexy thing. And so if you could find any rationale for putting an AI label on what you were doing, uh, everyone knew that helped your cachet and your valuation. But it also meant that by, I think, 2018, there were something like 15,000 companies in the Crunchbase database that were claimed to be AI startups. And of course, when you scratch below the surface and say, well, what does that actually mean? Uh, it turned out on average, it meant almost nothing. But there were hundreds of legitimately focused uh, deep learning startups that really had mastered some of these key concepts in convolutional neural networks and were putting them to work in a vast variety of ways in the cloud, in enterprise, in edge computing, for video, for audio, for language, for credit card transactions, for marketing purposes. There were so many different applications. So it's been a period of immense um, ferment. And I loved you know, watching and helping and nudging and commenting and blogging. And I published a, uh, a list of uh, 350 or 400 of what I thought were the most interesting startups worldwide, including spending time in China and really kind of understanding the Chinese deep learning startup scheme and 
of figuring out what was going on in Israel and other places of, of sustained innovation. Quite interesting. But when a, a group of former colleagues from Tensilica said, oh, well, we're thinking about uh, starting something new in this area. I said, okay, sure, I will, I'll advise you. But very shortly, I realized it was one thing to be on the sidelines, courtside, you know, yelling uh, <laughs> advice to the players out on the court, but another thing to be out among the sharp elbows. And I decided I wanted to be among the sharp elbows. And so uh, with them, we created Babel Labs in the fall of 2017, pulled together this remarkable small team and started working on new ideas in speech processing uh, using deep neural networks. And we you know, built something again that was interesting technically and reached the point of first product maturity in removing noise from speech streams, live speech streams, just at the moment when everybody went into lockdown and everybody suddenly was spending 10 hours a day in Zoom and WebEx and you know, Google Meet and really was having this enormous problem with how do you be a professional in what is now a very unprofessional environment with barking dogs and yelling kids and the vacuum cleaner going in the background. And we had this remarkable technology that just makes all those background sounds disappear. And so you could have, at least from an audio standpoint, a perfectly professional environment wherever you are. Uh, and that became something of pretty intense demand. Uh, and ultimately, Cisco was the one who captured our, our hearts and minds and, and pocketbooks. Uh, <laughs> and uh, we uh, closed the acquisition by Cisco uh, on um, October 1st, uh, just uh, a few weeks ago. So that's the kind of complete long-winded uh, story arc for me and startups and acquisitions by big companies. So let's take a couple um, couple ideas here. So two times out of the three were involved with hardware, right? The yeah. first the first two. So it, since they were somewhat in the same space, did you into Tensilica? Did you take some of your original ideas or uh, things that you wanted to pursue, but ultimately got acquired and, and stopped? Or were there things that kind of came up because of the time and new possibilities? Well, certainly working at NIPS and working on lean, efficient microprocessor design was a great foundation for thinking about what is a lean, efficient <clears throat> architecture in a domain-specific sense. And there's a, a very rich, deep field of understanding what can compilers do in mapping down from high-level languages and what works from a transistor and silicon and interconnect standpoint to achieve better architectures. Um, and it came at a time when, on the one hand, it was obvious that there's a big market for standard architectures, but where the kind of techniques that you need to apply to get more and more performance 
across a broad range of applications from a standard instruction set were getting much more complicated. That people had gone from just having you know, good caches and uh, you know, if efficiently defined uh, instructions to issuing multiple instructions per cycle and out of order execution and um, very logically complex mechanisms in order to squeeze some more performance out of those machines. <laughs> and so the transistor count, the power per operation <clears throat> on a relative basis were exploding because people needed to get faster and faster. The, uh, we were working at a time where the available technology allowed us to build much more complex machines. Uh, and the push for ever more performance from these standard instruction sets, whether it was the MIPS instruction set or the ARM instruction set or the x86 instruction set meant that we built much more complex out of order instruction issue, non-blocking caches, all kinds of sophisticated, you know, multi-processor cache coherency, uh, but they came at a cost in design time, in chip size, in power dissipation. And so there were some lessons to be learned from that, but in building Tensilica, we were also going in some sense, the exact opposite direction. We were swimming upstream against the tide of, you know, standard architecture is the only way. And I think what we discovered is that standard architectures make sense in some contexts. That is, if you just want a platform which millions of different programmers are all going to target, you know, it's almost essential that you have that uniformity. But if you have a processor whose role is more deeply embedded and is only going to be programmed by a finite community, then building an architecture which is well suited to the applications of that community or even to that specific chip design becomes not only possible, but becomes the pathway to a dramatically more efficient implementation. And so it allows you now to do things in a programmable fashion that you would have had to done, would have had to have done in a you know, much more hardwired, much more fragile uh, fashion. And so the idea of Tensilica certainly built on that experience that I had and this co-founding team had coming from the cl classical microprocessor domain, but it was also turning it upside down at the same time. In moving from Tensilica and especially going into investing and looking at the broader market for deep learning, um, I came to a grudging realization that so much of the innovation taking place across the entire information technology space was at higher and higher levels. Yes, semiconductors are essential. Yes, microprocessors are essential part, but they are buried more and more deeply under layers of API and 
software services and other kinds of um, intermediaries and where the cost and the time to build new semiconductors has continued to rise relative to the cost of building some new software innovation. And so I made a conscious choice to say, well, I've never done a, st a software startup and it is fundamentally quicker to do a software startup than to do a hardware startup. And so I really only considered software startups, partly for the variety, partly because it's just more economically efficient. It has a different set of problems. Doing a software startup has in fact become so easy, so relatively cheap to doing any kind of a startup in the 80s or the 90s that there's an enormous number. There is so much competition. There are so many different people now around the world, not just across Silicon Valley, who are coming up with you know, roughly analogous ideas in all of these different markets. That the problem is not, can it be done? But can it be done better and faster and uh, more focused on the emerging trends than the other people who might be contemplating something in the same general area. So uh, I think it is just a fact of life about the structure of these information technologies that there is this layering up such that the, a lot of the really interesting ideas are happening at the top of the stack where the world is being changed by the changes in the total infrastructure of what lies below such that you know you can now build a, a startup which is uh, you know a new kind of application built on cloud microservices whereas 10 years ago none of those things existed in the current form and you so you couldn't even contemplate uh, doing that kind of innovation and where further existing companies tend to stick at their own place in the stack it's very hard for a big company to say, oh, well, we're no longer going to do hardware. We're just going to do software or we're no longer going to do uh, stuff at the edge. We're going to do everything in the cloud. Companies do make that transition, but it's actually pretty hard for big companies to make such a fundamental retooling. And that leaves a lot of that innovation potential open to these smaller startups, and which is why you see startups playing such a big role at the leading edge, uh, because they're able to exploit the transition to these higher and higher levels in the stack more quickly, and in some cases more completely than established companies. That's a really awesome point to really think about there. And so you mentioned something just a bit ago that I wanted to ask you about. He said, so many companies or startups are using the word or term, they are an AI company. So yeah. where you stand today, and as an investor, as somebody who just was acquired in deep learning, where is the boundary of when you are not an AI company and when you are an AI company? Yeah, now that's a good question. I mean, AI is a big umbrella term. Mm -hmm. And uh, AI includes you know, fear improving, and it includes uh, rule-based expert systems and, and lots of other things that are legitimately AI. 
but not actually the focus of what most people really find at the heart of the current AI revolution. At the heart of the current AI revolution is learned models, often something directly or indirectly uh, inspired by you know, neomorphic structures. So they're, they're neural networks, they're convolutional neural networks or some other variation of a, a neural network, which is a big mathematical model with a very large number of coefficients and which when those coefficients are properly chosen, allows you to emulate almost any kind of constructive or, um, or classification function. And most importantly, where those coefficients in the model are derived from a training process, which exposes uh, that network to a vast amount of data, example. So it is in fact uh, a domain in which the conventional notion of programming, you know, somebody writes an algorithm in C or Java or Python with something where we're effectively programming by just providing a vast corpus of examples, positive and negative examples. And that model, programming just by exposing to data is uh, I think at the heart of what we mean by AI properly today and where the most uh, innovation and transformation is taking place. Data-driven uh, description of how we get to a solution as opposed to a programmatic algorithmic description. Um, and fortunately, or maybe unfortunately, we live in a world in which a vast amount of data is being captured one way or another. And so we have lots and lots of examples of, uh, from which to derive uh, patterns and to capture those pattern recognizers deep inside of different kinds of tools and software and services. My last question to you is, if you for a second could look at the, your resume or look, listen to the story that you just shared and it's not you, and you heard that person, what would you say that that person has done successfully in starting three companies and exiting? What was their gift? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know how much of it is captured in the, um, in the story I just told, but I would say that the unifying themes in the companies I have built and in the role that I have played are the following focus on deep technology innovation at the highest standard of technical insight and discipline. Be really good technically. Uh, second, uh, I think build a great place to work. Build a community, a way of communicating openly and honestly about what's going on with the products, what's going on with the finances, be very open. <laughs> Trust that people are grownups and give them the information they need to make decisions on behalf of the company. And really embrace the respect for one another 
and embrace the idea that we're doing something which is of fundamental importance above and beyond how much money we make doing it. Really embrace changing the world in some positive way. Now, we're doing it in a very technical sort of way. We have to believe that you know, better microprocessors you know, change the world <laughs> in a positive way. Uh, but you know, that really that sense of mission is, is critically important, such that I really want people to be able to say years later, oh, the best period of my career when was, it, when, was when I was working for Tensilico or when I was working for Babel Labs because of what we accomplished together. For me particularly, I've had a chance to examine what has my role as a company leader. And it is, it's partly strategic. Really choosing what are the targets? What, not how we're gonna get up the mountain, but which mountain are we going to climb? What markets are we going to choose? It's building a team. Because in fact, I do very little of the work. I do very little of the decision-making in the organization. It's all these other wonderful people. And so pulling together that team, finding them and getting them to work together in an environment that makes those particular individuals as productive and happy as possible is critically important. And the third thing I really am, I'm a storyteller. A CEO spends a lot of time telling stories. It's telling stories while recruiting. It's telling stories to customers. It's telling stories to partners and suppliers. It's telling stories to investors. And all the stories have to be true. All the stories have to be consistent with science, but you're painting a picture of what is possible with a small leap of faith. If we all do what we say we uh, can do, then this becomes possible. So painting that picture is uh, critically important. So storytelling, strategy, building a team are at the core of what, what I think is, is most important. Chris, thank you so much for this. This is a power packed 45 minutes here. Appreciate all this time. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Innovative Interactions Podcast. For more tips from creatives and innovators, or if you'd like to reach out to us, visit resemble.ai. And if you have a guest you'd like to hear from, reach out to us at podcast at resemble.ai. We'd like to thank Tony and Paul for the music on the show. Catch you next time.